Good morning, Edgewater. So good to see what God has done in 15 years. Matt and I were buddies back in the Applegate days when he, he and I worked together. And 15 years ago, uh, God sent this group out and what a magnificent thing God has done. You're not in the Rogue Bowl anymore. You're missing Fruitdale Elementary School? No, not, not really. Uh, this is amazing. So glad to be able to share with you. Got to spend some time, as Dick mentioned, with the crew, uh, Matt and Chad, uh, over in Lake Tahoe and their wives, which was fantastic. And then got to spend some time with Mark and uh, Dick. So just so good to be here. I've always admired Matt and followed his teachings. Uh, the master Jedi teacher uh, he is. Uh, <laughs> actually, speaking of that, I was out in the hallway and I, I saw... One of Matt's children, his youngest, Myron, uh, and a few other boys, and they were sort of bragging about their dads, as boys can often do. And the first boy said, you know, my dad scribbles on a piece of paper, calls it a poem, and they give him 50 bucks for it. The other kid's like, my dad scribbles on a piece of paper. They give him, he calls it a song, and they give him 100 bucks for it. And Myron said, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles on a piece of paper, he calls it a sermon, and it takes eight people with baskets to collect all the money. (laughs) So the worst that can happen this morning is that I'll make Matt look really good, and you'll be really glad that he's back. Um, We're going to be in Psalm 27, so if you have a Bible, if you would turn to Psalm 27 with me this morning. Again, my name is Brian Fowler, and it's a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Now verse four, the one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent And set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. His sacred tent, at his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have, not, you have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. But I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And the church says, amen to the word of God. Of the 
beauty of this psalm, there's one particular phrase I just want to center on this morning, and that's, again, look at verse 4, the sentiment of David. He says this, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. But then notice he says, for that he may gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, we know from most Bible scholarship that the backstory in which David wrote this psalm, this beautiful psalm, is a time in his life when he was actually being hunted by the current king, Saul. And if you remember your Old Testament, you know that David had been anointed by Samuel to be the king, but there was another man sitting on the throne named Saul, and David found himself being sort of a hero in Israel. Women were singing songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And so it was in that environment to which Saul became jealous of David and began to hunt him from cave to cave and city to city. So you just imagine David is somewhere in a cave being chased and hunted where he puts pen to parchment and he writes this psalm. The thing that strikes me about what David writes in this time of his life is that he essentially says, there's really one thing that I desire of the Lord. Now, can you imagine if your life was under the stress and duress of being hunted by an army, by a king, your life was at stake, and yet David says, with all of this mounting, there's only one thing I desire of the Lord. I I could imagine praying, there are 10,000 things I seek from the Lord. But David said, it's one thing, And it's the presence of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his house. And so this morning, I just simply want to talk about a theology of God's presence. You ready to talk about some presence of God this morning? Is there anything else we really want out of life than just the presence of the Lord? Now, in the theological community, which I guess we would all be a part of, because the word theology, theology just simply means theos, God, ology, the study of God. So we're all theologians. Welcome to church. Um, Any one of us that's learning and growing and knowing God is a theologian of sorts. You can be one of two types of theologian, either a bad one or a good one. Hopefully we're good theologians. Hopefully I'm a decent theologian. But the theological community, when talking about the attributes of God, have come up with three terms to sort of encompass the nature of God. We call them the three omnis of God. Anybody heard of the three omnis of God? We say that that God in his character and nature is omnipotent or omni-all-potent. He's all-powerful, amen? Are you a church that says amen when the preacher's preaching? You're saying only if the preaching's good. So I'll know if you're quiet that I didn't really do a very good job today. Um, God is omnipotent. He has all power. But then the theological community has also said that God is omniscient. He's omniscience. He's all-knowing. So our God is all-knowing. Our God is all-powerful. But then there's this phrase that we used to describe the Lord, that he is omnipresent. Now, God's omnipresence, maybe a simple working definition for that is just simply he is everywhere at all times in his fullness. Everywhere at all times in his fullness, which essentially says this. He is with us here in southern Oregon in Grants Pass at Edgewater. Simultaneously, He's in Portland, Oregon with my wife, Shannon, and our four kids, the Fowler Four. And he's in China, and he's in the Congo, and he's on Pluto, 
and he's filling every crevice of his universe, everywhere at all times in his fullness. So one of the, the truths about God is that he's all present, everywhere, in his fullness, here and there and all over the universe. But in church, oftentimes, I don't know, you may have said this or you may have felt this before, but you know, we're in a worship service and the gathering is just beautiful and just, there, there's a sense that God is present and, and we say things like, man, didn't God just show up last Sunday at church? Or you're at your office and you know, you're, you're having a conflict with one of your coworkers, so to speak, and, 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 and you say, man, God just moved in and, and showed up in that moment. But, but theologically, that can't be because God never shows up anywhere. He's always everywhere in his fullness at all times. But what we mean is this next level of truth about the presence of God, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, and that is what we call special presence, or as it's been termed, manifest presence. Now, here's a simple definition, working definition of the manifest presence of God is simply God revealing himself in such a way that his glory, attributes, and splendor is felt, experienced, or seen. Now, how many want more of that in your life? The presence of God being felt, experienced, and seen. We would say that it's when heaven and earth touched each other. It's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is in. Great job, theologians. It's, it's what the Celtic Christians called the thin places. They spoke of these moments in time where it seemed like the veil between heaven and earth got very thin. The thin places, the manifest presence of the Lord. And that's really deeply what we all crave in our lives is this manifest presence of the Lord. And the scriptures teach us that we're supposed to go after God in this way and crave God in this way as David did here in our psalm. Psalm 105 verse four simply says it this way. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face. Now, as people who desire the manifest presence of God in our lives, um, we can't really predict when God is going to make his presence known to us. But we can prepare ourselves to receive his presence. You know, it's that classic old church sign, revival, first assembly, seven o'clock Saturday night, and you're thinking, that sounds pretty presumptuous. Like we're putting God on our Google calendar and saying, at this time in this place, God's gonna show up. We can't really do that, but we can prepare ourselves to be in a place to receive God's presence, to welcome God's presence into our lives. It's like this, um, such a beautiful day, so I can't even imagine, but if, if just suddenly storm clouds rolled in, you guys aren't out in the Rogue Bowl this summer, so you know, you're under the shelter of God's wings right here in this beautiful building, right? Um, but let's just say it's storm clouds come and it just starts like pouring down rain. In here, we're not going to get touched by the rain. You're saying, you are brilliant. Where did you go to seminary? Um, but in order for us to experience what's coming down from heaven, what, we have to get up out of our seats and position ourselves in a place where we can be out in the rain. So what I just simply want to talk about this morning is how to get out in the rain when God's presence, presence is manifested, when a special presence is, it, it, it comes to us. And there are a couple of ways that we can attract the presence of God. 
And there are a couple ways I want to mention that we repel the presence of God. So first of all, how do we attract the presence of God? So you might, if you're a note taker, I'm sure you are because you have a great Bible teacher in Matt and uh, you probably want to write down what he says. Um, Things that attract the presence of God, first and foremost, is personal holiness. And at that, there may have been a quiet sigh within your soul that says, oh no, we're going to talk about holiness and of all the things that people have described me as, I'm funny, I'm charismatic, I'm shy, I'm whatever, holy's never been a word in which someone's used to describe me. You know, that guy, he's holy. She's holy. And I think, though, really holy has gotten sort of a, a little bit twisted in our understanding. You know, sometimes when you imagine the word holy, maybe you imagine God far off and in his magnitude, Or you imagine like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments standing there with the tablets in hand. Or you imagine like a priest in a robe dipping his hands in the holy water. And you're saying, holy, holy, I'm not holy. And if if, if God's presence, if I need to be holy to attract the presence of God, I'm out. And if you're going to give me a list of do's and don'ts in which I need to, to step into to attract the presence of God, I don't know if I can live up to that. But, but really, when you think of the word holy, think of the word separate or other or whole. And holy and happy go hand in hand. So when you think holy, think happy. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 about Jesus, because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God anointed him with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows. So Jesus was happy, joyful. He wasn't a blonde, blue-eyed, gaunt fellow that looked like he was holy. No, the Bible says he was, he was a friend of sinners. He was even accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. He was frequently at dinner parties. Jesus was glad. Holy is happy. So listen to what the psalmist has to say about our pursuit of personal holiness and how it attracts the presence of God. Psalm 41, 12, because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Then Psalm 51, and if you don't know Psalm 51, it's David's repentance psalm after he had sort of blown it big time with Bathsheba, you remember, you know, he takes her and has an adulterous relationship with her, impregnates her, and then he has her husband bumped off. I mean, bad day for David, like low point in his life. And, and it's into that he writes this repentance psalm about needing the presence of God and personal holiness to return to his life. Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now question, when David said, do not cast me away from your presence, was he speaking about God's omnipresence? If we understand omnipresence properly, it's not possible that David could be cast away from God's omnipresence. Even later in the Psalm, Psalm 139, the psalmist says, if I ascend up into heaven, God, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there as well. God is everywhere. So what David is pleading for is not that God's omnipresence would be, not be taken away, but that his special presence would not be taken away. The intimacy and fellowship he desired from the Lord. Remember, David said in the midst of all his trouble, this is the one thing I want from the Lord. 
This only will I seek, that I may gaze in the beauty of the Lord and be in his presence in his temple. David says, don't take that away from me, Lord. Don't cast me away from your presence, Lord. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And the one thing we need to understand about our pursuit of personal holiness is its motivation. We do not pursue personal holiness for justification. Your justification, your right standing before God happened because of whom? You can talk back. This is Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? Jesus makes you presentable before God. It's because of Jesus that you're presentable before the Lord. You've been justified before God because of Jesus. So it's nothing that you have done. It's everything that Jesus did. We do not pursue personal holiness for justification, but for fellowship. Because we so desire to be in intimate relationship with the Lord. And so David cries out against those things that are in his life that are unholy. Lord, create in me a, a clean heart. I've been sinful. I've been immoral. I've been proud. I've been angry. I've been greedy. I've gossiped. And God, remove those things from my life. Help me to walk in holiness so that I might experience your presence. So number two, not only do we attract the presence of God through number one, personal holiness. Number two, and I love this one, and that is the praises of God's people. Listen to the Psalm as he writes in Psalm 22, verse three, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Now I like the New King James. How many of you read New King James? The New King James put Psalm 22, 3 as we, that God is enthroned in the praises of Israel. And so I have sort of this image of God being, sitting on a throne, like, like while we were singing praises to him this morning, just lifting up his name, we were sort of constructing a throne and God sits as king of hearts on a throne of praise as we adore him and we lift up his name, he's enthroned upon our praise. And so God calls us to praise him for the purpose of making him the king in our midst. Now, I think that at this point, for some of us, we might, you know, look at the Psalms, which frequently command us to lift up our hands, to lift up our voices, to bow the knee, to play instruments loudly with joy before the Lord. And for some of you, you might think, well, you know, I'm just not an extrovert. I'm more shy or reserved. My wiring isn't to be enthusiastic in worship. I didn't see anybody dancing this morning, so I'm assuming you're not one at a dancing church, right? Um, so, you know, but, but the psalmist has this, like, this sense of like, like, use your energy, your vigor to worship the Lord. But see, what happens is there's this really funny polarization in the church. And if you've been around church world for a while, you've probably seen this. But there's what I call the emotionally charged church. And they're the church when they will get their praise on. People dance, tambourines being handed out. It is just hooping and hollering and awesome, right? They're, they're exercising their emotions to worship the Lord. And then there's the other side of the pendulum, which is the intellectually charged church, I call them. And they tend to toss sort of grenades across company lines against each other to the emotionally charged church looks at the intellectual church and says, you guys are dead. Like, get some life in you. Somebody say amen. Somebody stand up. Somebody lift their hands. Somebody dance. Somebody get into this. And the intellectually charged church that's got all their doctrine in line looks at the emotionally charged church and says, we may not have no heart in your opinion, but you have no brain. 
And the church just seems to go in between these two extremes, all heart and all brain. But you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to love the Lord, Deuteronomy chapter six, the great Shema, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a full being expression of worship. In other words, you should be tired when you come home from church. Not because the sermon was boring and long and dry, but because you have, we were exercising in church. Could you imagine you pull into your driveway, you're all sweaty, and your neighbor's like, what is going on with you? Did you just come back from the gym or doing yoga or something? You're like, no, I was at church just on me. I was giving praise to the Lord God Almighty, and I just, I let loose. I danced before the Lord. There's actually this scene in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David, the king, is bringing the ark of the Lord back into Jerusalem after it had been away for some time. And as he's bringing it back in, there's this moment where he just stops and he strips down to his linen ephod. You're like, what's a linen ephod? Just whitey tidies. That's what they are. (laughs) Jerusalem whitey tidies, fruit of the looms. He strips down to his underwear and he's just, the Bible says he danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now, I can't dance. You can ask my wife. We took a dancing class, and uh, they were teaching us all these different forms of dance, and there was like 20 other couples. The entire time, the instructor was standing behind me, <laughs> correcting me. So I, I, I can't dance. But David is dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He was exercising his energy, his body, to worship the Lord. And his wife was watching, Michael. When he gets home, she's like, you made a fool out of yourself dancing around in your underwear in front of all Israel. And he says, woman? No, he probably didn't say that, but he says, listen, what I have done, I've done before the Lord. And then he adds this, and I'm going to become even more indignified than this. If you were embarrassed of me dancing in my underwear in the street, it's going to get even crazier, so you just might want to leave the room. But that, that, is, that is someone who's saying, in order to worship the Lord, sometimes it does require passion and energy and effort to rise up. I mean, well, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but I know that all of us has the, have the potential to be passionate. And, and, and if there's anything we're going to express our energy for, shouldn't it be the Lord? Doesn't he, isn't he worth the effort Just do a study of the book of Psalms and you'll see that the psalmist asks us to expend ourselves physically in worship and adoration to the Lord. Amen? Some of you saying amen, some of you saying ouch, some of you saying I don't know about this guy. Um, One of my favorite Brits, a guy named Clive Staples Lewis, you may have heard of him, uh, C.S. Lewis, known for the Chronicles of Narnia. When he uh, was first becoming a Christian, or before he was a Christian, he didn't understand the Psalms because he thought it just seemed ridiculous that God was always asking us to praise him. He was like, does God have an inferiority complex? He's always saying, praise me, praise me. He actually said that God seemed to him like an old woman seeking compliments. But then he began to follow Jesus and he recognized that this is the truth of praise. I think it's worth listening to. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the joy, now listen, the joy is not complete until it is expressed. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are, 
The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. You have those moments in your life when you see something beautiful and it's not that the beautiful thing requires you to say something about it for it to be beautiful, but the experience is not complete until you say, oh, that is beautiful. Wow, you just let out that, oh, when you see a beautiful mountain precipice or you're somewhere at a, at a river or a beach and you just see the beauty of God at the sunset or when I first saw my wife, it just required that I let out a, oh, how did I find this woman, you know? Um, and and so, so, so essentially, one of the things that we do to attract the presence of God, personal holiness and also the praises of his people. But then we're gonna end with this. Things that detract from the, or repel the presence of God. And there are just two of them, and these will be brief. First is pride. How many know that God hates pride? Psalm 138, verse six says it this way. The Lord is high. He regards the lowly, but the haughty, and not the one you're thinking of. The haughty he knows from afar. James chapter four, verse six says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God's economy is so different than ours. To the proud, he resists them. He Heisman Trophy stiff arms them. But to the humble, he shows grace. God's economy is upside down from this world's economy. In this world's economy, the way to be first is to succeed and to get for yourself. But Jesus said things that were so upside down, like the first will be last. The last will be first. If you want to be great, become the servant of everybody. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. And so the way into the kingdom is exactly opposite of the way that we think. So God resists pride and he lifts up and gives favor to the the humble. And for each of us who are now in the kingdom, our hearts have been changed by Jesus. We know this, the only way that one comes into the kingdom is through personal brokenness. And in God's economy, broken things have value. In in our economy, something broken loses value. A broken thing is less valuable, but in the kingdom, something only begins to be valuable when it is broken. We must be broken into life. No one comes to the Lord apart from personal brokenness. And the Bible's clear. God resists pride and gives grace to the humble. God, give us a humble spirit as we come before him. And then finally, and this is one you may not expect, but of things that repel the presence of God finally is complacency or indifference. Now listen to the proverb, chapter one, verse 32. The waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. It's actually asked of us that we express some enthusiasm in our relationship with Jesus. And so for some of us, we may say, well, it's just not my wiring. I'm just not an enthusiastic person. But, but here is Here is the truth about each of us. If I knew you well enough and I knew the right buttons to push, I could see a once passive, quiet person become 
extremely passionate. If I knew the right buttons, I could get you angry or I could get you excited. For instance, how many Ducks fans are in here? Beavers fans? Just that rivalry itself could cause just great consternation and a church split, right? Um, you know, and so, so you take a sports fan going to the, the, see their, their sports team and, you know, grown men with dad bods will take their shirts off and paint themselves green or orange, depending on the side you're on, ducks or beavers. And the same guy that might fall asleep in church and act like church is no fun and not enthusiastic in worship, hands up and belly painted green with a big D on it, Right? Or the same teenager that's like, man, when is this guy going to shut up so I can go to lunch or something? Get him tickets to Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or I don't know who you guys are listening to these days. You know, and all of a sudden that same complacent teenager is like cell phone out and swaying and hands lifted, singing their favorite Bieber song. The, because the truth is, someone said amen. The only thing you said amen to this morning is Justin Bieber. Awesome. <laughs> The same man that doesn't really get excited in church, wait till hunting season. Guy's getting up super early, camoed out, driving to Eastern Oregon, putting deer urine all over him or whatever, <laughs> hiding out in a tree stand. That guy's not passionate? That's passion. Just misdirected passion, in my humble opinion. Um, I mean, if you need meat, great, but you know, I mean, come on, like, if you can't worship in church, then uh, you shouldn't be that crazy at hunting season. Um, but we're all passionate people if only the right buttons are pushed. What causes passion in me is the clearest indicator of what I most treasure. And when the Lord becomes center in my life, his manifest presence becomes my ultimate pursuit. As David said, this is the one thing I desire of the Lord. This is what I'm seeking after. Everything else pales in comparison to the presence of the Lord in my life, rich and full and deep. I'm going to finish with this, but there's this uh, guy named Paul. You may have heard of him before. Um, he wrote the Bible. Kind of a big deal. He's our pastor. And he was a very well-accomplished person. He actually writes in Philippians 3 of all the things he'd accomplished. He was, you know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. Um, historically, we know that Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, he was such a ravenous student that the only complaint his teacher Gamaliel had against him was that he couldn't give him enough material. He was just getting through it so quickly. And, and Paul had accomplished a lot. He spoke three languages. He had the equivalent of two PhDs in education. And yet he says of all that he had done, and then he becomes a Jesus follower and he crisscrosses the known world with the gospel of Jesus. He's accomplished more than most of us will in a lifetime. He wrote books in the Bible. Do we need to say more? He's like, yeah, I wrote a book in the Bible or two or a third of the New Testament. And yet he says of all that he had done, all of his accomplishments, he writes in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of my accomplishments, all that I've done is nothing compared to Christ, for whose sake I have lost everything. And then he says, I consider them garbage. And you may have a translation that actually uses the word dung. I consider them horse manure. All of my accomplishments are nothing, even though they're great things I've done, compared to the glory of knowing Christ, it's all garbage, it's all refuse, it's all Dung that I may gain Christ.
And again, the pursuit of those who truly love Jesus is just this one thing, that I may know and pursue the presence, the manifest presence of God. I finish with the story and then we'll go to the communion table, but uh, I have four kids. Um, my oldest is now 18. I know I only look 25, but I'm a little older than that. Um, started when I was 12. Um, well, my son, who's now 18, you know, big guy, taller than me, big, deep voice, when he was just a little guy, like three years old, Silas, he had this toy gorilla. And you, you who have kids, you know, they, sometimes they get obsessed with one toy. Well, his little plastic toy gorilla was, had become his obsession, his precious, right? And he, he just carried this thing everywhere. So we had this routine. Every night we put him to bed, we sort of had to pry the toy gorilla out of his hand and put it up on a shelf where he couldn't reach it or else he wouldn't go to sleep. So we go through this routine one evening and, you know, we put him in bed, pray with him, give him his bear and his blanket, and we take the toy out of his hand, put him up on the top shelf, and everything goes as normal. The next morning, I have to get up super early. I'm preparing a sermon or something like that, and I'm sitting at my desk at some really ungodly hour, like 4.30 a.m., and all of a sudden I hear the door to his room open, and, and then I see, like, his silhouette come out, and he's just classic scene, bedhead. His little blanket, Mr. Blanky, he called him in his bear, Solomon in his hand. And, you know, he's my first kid, so I don't know how this whole thing goes. So I just have this, like, moment of, like, parental bliss in my imagination of where my son sees me and in slow motion drops everything in his hand and just runs toward me, shouting, Daddy, I love you, and just jumps up on my lap and requests a morning Bible study. And there, you know, we would study about the manifest presence of God or something like that. But that, that's not how it happened. He comes up to me and he goes, he has a little high Mickey Mouse voice at that time. Daddy, daddy, can I have my toy gorilla? And I was like, I was offended. He didn't say hi. Didn't say, daddy, I love you. Or daddy, can I help you? Or daddy, what's going on? Or good to see you, dad. Just dad, can I have something from you? I need, I need, I need. I need from you what I can't get for myself because I'm too short. So I'm going to use you to get for me what I desire. And so he's three, so I'm his dad. I'm like, okay. So we go into his room, and I grab the toy gorilla, and I realize if I give this to him right now, we're not, he's not going to sit on my lap. So I'm no dummy. I lure him out of the room with the toy gorilla. Come on, boy. And I go sit at my chair. Come on, Silas. He gets on my lap. I give him his toy gorilla. And there we sat, father and son, both having what we wanted. Silas had the toy that meant so much to him. And I had him. Now he's 18 now. He doesn't sit on my lap anymore, only sometimes when he's scared. (laughs) And we don't know where that toy gorilla went, but the relationship that we were forging in those years was what I was after. And, you know, for some of us, our prayers sound like my three-year-old son. Daddy, daddy, can I have a better job? Daddy, daddy, I need a girlfriend. Daddy, daddy, I want a Tesla. Daddy, daddy, I need fill in the blank, more square footage in the house. Because in our mind, our world has been reduced to the equivalent in God's eyes to a, a toy that a child plays with. And God uses those things for a season so that we can realize after a season that it's really not those things that I desire. It's the Lord. 
And I promise you this, if you've realized this already, God bless you. If you're still growing in this as I am, then join me on this journey. But really all you deeply crave, if it was all taken away, you could say with Paul, I count it all as dung. It doesn't matter. It's just knowing the Lord Jesus that makes my life full and rich and deep, amen?